0: listening to ohio v the world an ohio history podcast the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the buckeye state subscribe to the show on itunes and stitcher and don't forget to rate and review us join the conversation now at facebook stream and donate to the show at be the world podcast.com now here's your host Alex Hasty.
1: Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 9 Ohio vs. the Mafia. The Mafia. The Mob. Lacosa Nostra. part of my background, I'm Sicilian. spaghetti and red sauce is my favorite food. My favorite movies are almost all gangster movies. Godfather 1 and 2, The Departed, Goodfellas, Sopranos is my favorite show. Today we're going to be talking about another true story here in Ohio that was turned into a mob movie. It's going to be the story of the Cleveland Mafia that was featured in the 2011 film Kill the Irishman. Our guest today, Rick Perello, wrote that book that became the movie Kill the Irishman 2011 starring Val Kilmer, Christopher Walken, Vincent D'Onofrio, Paul Sorvino, really great cast. And today we'll tell the story from Rick's book to Kill the Irishman of Danny Green and how Cleveland, Ohio's Danny Green ended up bringing down the mob, not just in Ohio, but all over the country. Today we're recording uh, in the conference room of a friend of mine, fellow lawyer Brian Tobman. So I want to thank, give Brian a shout out. TobmanLaw They do all kinds of criminal work, personal injury, all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's actually where we recorded our first episode here on West Twenty Fifth Street in Ohio City. Um, you know, our most listened to episode about the Kent State shootings. So if you haven't listened to that one, episode one, uh, go back and find it. Uh, it's a really good episode, and, and we recorded it here at Tobman Law uh, last year. So thanks again for having me and rick here today much appreciated our beer for today's episode is conway's irish ale from great lakes brewing uh the great lakes brewing company up in up in cleveland out in ohio city where we're recording today greatlakesbrewing.com really the original craft brewer here in the state of ohio been doing it since the 80s uh conway's irish ale is named after the owners pat and dan conway their their grandfather uh it's got a picture of an old policeman, an old Cleveland policeman, which he was. And we're speaking with a policeman today. We're speaking with Rick Perello, author, who also happens to be the chief of police in Lyndhurst, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland, uh, one of the inner suburbs on the east side, right next to Cleveland Heights, where I used to live. Conway's is a, is a seasonal ale, comes out in the winter, came out last month, uh, comes out every year for a few months. It's an Irish ale, 6.5%. Um, kind of has like a almost caramelly, malty, chocolatey flavor to it, um, and like I said, not too bitter. Really good beer if you're into Irish Irish ales. Uh, so go check them out. Again, GreatLakesBrewing.com. They've got their amazing uh, brew pub there in Ohio City, right off of West 25th, where we recorded the show just today. So check them out. We've been nominated by Columbus Live, the paper down here. For their Best of Columbus 2018 poll, one of ten nominees for Best Podcast in Columbus for 2018. So go vote for Ohio V. The World, columbuslive.com. We'll put a link in the description of the episode if you want to scroll down on your phone. Put it on the website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com. Or you also go to our Facebook page, and we'll have a link there to vote for us. It's category number 65 under Entertainment. So it's really on the second page. If you go down and click Next, Where the bottom of the second page is is 65, you can vote for Ohio V. The World's Best Podcast at ColumbusLive.com. Today we're going to look at why Cleveland was such a mafia stronghold. The early years of the Cleveland mob, you know, I used to always go to the Murray Hill area, Little Italy in Cleveland. One of the great things about Cleveland, it has all these ethnic areas. But on the east side, near where I used to live, I'd always go to Mama Santa's, a great restaurant there. The Murray Hill Gang the Murray Hill Mob, um, the Mayfield Road Mob is what they were known, came out a Little Italy, and we'll talk about that area of Cleveland today. Um, but you know, my favorite Italian restaurants, I want you to Facebook me, Ohio v. The World. Uh, we'll put up a post this week, you know, asking our listeners, what are the best Italian restaurants in Ohio? Uh, like I said, Mama Santa's in Murray Hill, one of my favorites. Uh, Luca, another newer one in in the flats, a great spot. Here in Columbus, I've always been partial to Anthony Susie and the folks over at Berwick Manor. Um, they ha- you can eat lunch out there. They have takeout. Really, they, they're an amazing catering place. If you ever see them at a festival, they did my wedding. They also catered the uh, season one and season two launch party for the show. Incredible gnocchi with vodka sauce. Uh, but all their stuff's really good. It kind of reminds me of you know my grandparents. My, my grandma had an amazing spaghetti sauce. Uh, she was an awesome cook. And, you know, any place up in Youngstown, I mean, any place in, I've been to some of the best Italian restaurants I've ever been to, food-wise, have been just in mini malls in in the Mahoning Valley. Um, The MVR that's up there is a great, another great spot. Um, But we'll put a post up and we want to hear from you, what are the best Italian restaurants in Ohio? Like I said, we want you to find out, chime in, get involved in the discussion on Facebook.com. We'll talk with Rick Pirello today about why the Cleveland mob was such a strong organization. We'll talk about Danny Green and how his death ended up taking down the Cleveland mob and most of the mobs and mafias across the country. Uh, Rick has not only done the research on this, but his family was involved in organized crime during Prohibition in Cleveland. We'll talk about those early years of the Cleveland mafia when his family went to war with the Mayfield Road mob, the Little Italy mob. We're going to find out how Cleveland became Bomb City USA. Leave the gun and take the cannoli, because it's episode 9, Ohio versus the Mafia. <music> the Mafia comes to America from Sicily. Where some members of my family are from, called La Cosa Nostra, which means our thing. Codes like Omerta, a code of silence about, about criminal activity um, practiced by the mafia. You never talk to the cops. We ask our guest, Rick Perello briefly, you know, why were Sicilians so prevalent in organized crime, originally in the, in the old country, and the main source of the early gangsters here in the 20th century, when they crossed the Atlantic?
0: Well, in short, it was really the the instability uh, on the island, uh, the government instability that made conditions right for the development of the mafia in this this uh, this subculture uh, to provide um, to provide otherwise some st- stability with the. The less fortunate uh, members of the uh, of Sicily, and, and what happened is during the, the late 1800s and early 1900s, with the influx of uh, uh, immigrants into the United States, that same um, element of the Mafia was sort of imported and gained a foothold in in, in a few very small percentage of the uh, of the immigrants were inclined to follow. You know, the the ways of the mafia. So it it just naturally developed in uh, most of the the big cities in the United States, eastern uh, and and midwest cities.
1: The American mafia starts in in earnest, really in the early 20th century in New York City. Italians and Sicilians come to Ellis Island in droves, and many stay in, in New York City. You know, knowing other immigrants, entire neighborhoods are set up, Italian neighborhoods the Mafia gets a, fo- a foothold in the Big Apple. But Cleveland was a city that also grew quickly with organized crime, with Italian organized crime. And they emerged as a major Mafia stronghold, you know, as Prohibition comes in in 1920. We ask, why Cleveland?
0: Well, they, Cleveland was uniquely positioned geographically, being roughly, roughly halfway between New York and Chicago, uh, but also being on the lake, you know, as we moved out of the... The you know uh, the the Parello family's period of power when it was about the, the uh, booze that was made being made in small stills and bathtubs and and then uh, into rum running where the the, um, the demand uh, was for a better product coming in from Canada or or um, uh, you know they they, they just they, they wanted there was a dem- a new demand for the better product so rum running rum running became a new phase of uh, a prohibition violation, a lot of money to be made, and there was an organization in Cleveland that was combined, uh, and it was a Mayfield road mob, uh, the Milano brothers, uh, Tony Milano, uh, uh, Frank Milano, right. yeah. and 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 then the Jewish boys, uh, Mo Dalitz, Lou Rothkoff, Maury Kleinman, very powerful individuals associated with uh, some of the most powerful national figures like Meyer Lansky Lucky Luciano so they were uh, they were just positioned well with their relationships and the fact that um, they, they they didn't Worry so much about whether someone was Italian, whether they were Jewish, whether they were Irish, it was about business, and that was the new phase of organized crime. That, you know, starting in the 1930s with guys like Lucky Luciano, and and Meyer Lansky, and and men in uh, Cleveland. Uh, like yeah, Moe
1: Dalitz, like you mentioned. Moe Dalitz, absolutely. They
0: looked at at crime as a as a business, and this harks back even to um, to to, to earlier years with some of the guys. Uh, some of the powerful uh, mob figures, but be, because of that, they were very successful in uh, in in making money and establishing connections, and and uh, they just grew to be um, a, a really Cleveland the Cleveland uh, you know combination. They they called it was probably third in power. You mentioned New York and Chicago, probably third in power after those two big cities for a period of time. Um, during the uh, 1930s and maybe even going into the 40s and, and, and in New york you didn't have just one crime family as they as they call it uh not a good use of the word family but they had five families uh you know the the five uh, new york crime families and and they had a crime a New york uh, mafia commission comprised of the bosses of those five families but but also, there were two additional seats back in the 30s on that commission, and one was from Chicago, and one was, was from Cleveland. So that speaks volume.
1: Our guest Rick Perello's family in the 1920s also became involved in organized crime thanks to corn sugar. The corn sugar wars um, in, in the old, in the late 1920s, early 1930s um, take hold in Cleveland, and the Perellos are up against... You know, this Mayfield Road Mafia, this Little Italy Mafia. You know, you can check out his first book. It's even on audible.com, The Rise and Fall of the Cleveland Mafia. Really good book. Uh, Rick's first book. said it took him eight or nine years to to write it. And it is a very comprehensive look at 70 years of mafia history. Uh, But it includes his family. And why corn sugar? What was it about corn sugar that got his family, the Pirellos, involved in organized crime?
0: There's the seven Parello brothers and the four Leonardo brothers are uh, an important part of history here in northeast Ohio because they were uh, the, the combatants in the so-called sugar war. And you mentioned corn sugar, and that's really what it was all about. It was about control of corn sugar, the wholesaling of corn sugar, which was a very profitable uh, industry to be in because corn sugar was used to make corn liquor during during Prohibition. And it was uh, less expensive than cane sugar, which is what we have in our, uh, what most of us would have in our our kitchens. And it was easier also than cane sugar to ferment into alcohol. So it was a uh, profitable industry to control. But like all industries in organized crime, there were conflicts and eventual bloodshed.
1: The Pirellos find themselves in a war with the Mayfield Road mob. This organization, the you know, in Little Italy, was already one of the country's main organized crime groups, one of the main factions of La Cosa Nostra. During Prohibition, Chicago, New York, and Cleveland, Rick's grandfather Raymond Perello, is killed, and his murder goes unsolved. He's one of four brothers that were killed during this war. Unsolved, as far as the as the police are concerned, um, although we'd find that a man named Frank Brancato who would show up later in our Danny Green story, also had a role in this. We asked Rick, you know, to describe these sugar wars in Cleveland, really the first Cleveland mob war, uh, not the last, but the first one in the 1930s that involved the death of his grandfather, Raymond Perello.
0: Well, my grandfather, it, 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 that murder was never solved in that nobody was ever indicted and, and, and convicted for the actual murder. There was, in the case of my uh, grandfather uh, and my uh, uncle's murder. He he was with one of his older brother. Actually, interestingly, they were together. They were the third and fourth of the murders. Now going back two years earlier, 1930, my uncle Joe, who was the boss of the of the uh, family of the brothers, he was killed on. Uh, uh, Mayfield Road in Little Italy. Now, now the Perello Territory was Woodland Avenue and 110th Street. That was Pirello ter- Territory, and there were so many uh, murders that had, that had occurred, um, numerous, uh, that they dubbed the intersection the Bloody Corner. So that was Perello Territory. The Mayfield road mob was Little Italy. That was Milano territory. Supposedly an argument developed and, and the guns came out. My uncle was killed and his bodyguard was killed. And then forward, uh, three weeks later, another brother was killed, my uncle uh, Jim. Uh, and so then the Pirellos kind of laid low, but my, uh, grand, my grandfather and the other remaining brothers, some of them talked about avenging their brother's murders. Well... That wasn't a good thing. The Mayfield Road Mob considered them a threat, and they, you know, the, the remaining Perella brothers went into hiding for a while. When they came out, uh, shortly after that, 1932. February, as you mentioned, my uncle uh, Rosario who was the oldest of the brothers and my uh, grandfather Raymond, and their bodyguard were playing cards at hundred near 110th in and Woodland and three gunmen came in the front door, started shooting and uh, they were the, the two brothers were killed instantly. The bodyguard survived a few hours and he died. Um, Like I said, nobody indicted or convicted for the murder, but there was one man and an important figure in Cleveland mob history, Frank Brancato, who uh, was shot. Now, we don't know if he was shot by... You know, he came um, into
1: the hospital later, right? right
0: on yeah. the on the West Side. Right. Uh, but he took a bullet from that scene. Was it from my grandfather? Was it from the bodyguard? We don't know. But uh, he went into the West Side. Said that he was uh, West Side Hospital. Said that told the police he was shot in a fight on the West Side. Well, when that they took that bullet out of him and he did live, obviously, they traced that bullet to one of the guns that was found at the Pirello murder scene. He was convicted of uh, uh, perjury.
1: Same time as the corn sugar wars, Danny Green is born. In November 1933, Green is born in Collinwood. His mother would die shortly days after his birth, and he would be orphaned. Orphaned to his grandfather. Eventually, his grandfather worked the night shift, but he's born in this Collinwood area of East Cleveland. Um, Italians, African Americans, Irish, all in this this very historic neighborhood along the lake. East of downtown, about ten minutes, um, and he loves and reveres his Irish heritage, something that he'd take with him his whole life. Danny was a great athlete, great basketball player, baseball player, but never got along with Italian Americans. From his time in Collinwood to his time at St. Ignatius High School, where he was ultimately expelled, he had a problem with Italian Americans.
0: Yeah, boy, I mean, right, right on the lake, really, the northeast side of Cleveland, um, you know, working class area. Uh, a lot of Italians at that period of time. Slovak. There was a, a black population uh, uh, moving in, going back to those days. But a pretty popular and sizable uh, area, even even broken down, uh, you know, to to sub neighborhoods, you might say, in the, you know North Collinwood. But uh, that was Danny's uh, Danny's territory, Waterloo, actually, um, right off of uh, the Shoreway, and uh, and that's where one of the attempts to
1: kill him uh, occurred. Following Prohibition, the mafia has to find a new way to make money, and it grows in Cleveland, New York, cities like Chicago, Boston, Milwaukee, Kansas City had a very, very strong mafia presence, Los Angeles. They had their hands in everything, shaking down everyone. You know, In Cleveland, the Jewish mob was also a thing, uh, less organized, but one of the main figures was a guy named Shonder Burns, who we talk about, he becomes a partner of, of Danny Green's. Um, but they basically force businesses, extortion prices, protectionists it was called. They run the gambling, the prostitution. Cleveland even becomes a place where the Vegas skim, they're getting money from the Vegas casinos every month. People like Shonda Burns, I remember the Jewish racketeers, he ran something called the Numbers game. You always hear about that, the numbers. I always assumed it was just betting, sports gambling or something. But Shonda ran the numbers game. Shander was, you know, kind of the league commissioner, as Rick calls him, trying to keep the game on the level with all these different African American operators. You know, he's once almost killed at the Lancer Steakhouse. If anyone knows where that is, finally burnt down, but used to be over in Carnegie, over by Hot Sauce Williams over there. Shander Burns runs the numbers game. What are the numbers?
0: The numbers racket was just the lottery, but it was before lottery. Uh, the lottery was legalized, and it was very big. It was gambling and. Uh, uh... initially there was a uh, there were two games there was uh... Policy, yeah, policy, which was a drawing from numbered balls that were placed in a in a, a bag, let's say, and and mixed around, and then they would draw the ball out, and, and those would be
1: the winning numbers. And you could cheat on that, you know. There's some ways to do that. Yeah,
0: there there were ways. That was that game was uh, had a high risk of, of uh, cheating. Uh, you know, they could shave the balls concave or convex so that the puller would be able to feel what what balls to pull or what balls not to pull. They would freeze the balls. They would heat the balls. I love that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So uh, that led to the popularity of Clearinghouse, which was a three-digit number uh, and and really the predecessor to the Ohio Lottery's uh, three-digit game going back to the um, um, 70s. And that number was based on figures that appeared in the stock exchange, so almost impossible to cheat with uh, with clearinghouse. Became very popular, especially in the black community. It was mostly uh, uh, black racketeers that ran uh, the numbers. Very popular, uh, very popular in the black community, but not unpopular in the white communities, on especially on the east side of uh, of. the city. I mean, even my, you know, my family, my grandmother, you know, and, and the grandfather, my mother remembers them playing the number, uh, and it was just a, uh, you know, it's just a form of gambling and provided some, some hope to people that didn't have a lot of money. But uh, you know, the flip side is, you know, through those nickel and diamond quarter bets, I mean, it drained a lot of money out of poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah, the fifties and sixties.
1: And in the movie, we'll talk about the movie. He's played by he's, that's Walken's character, correct?
0: Yeah, Chris Walken plays uh, Shonda Burns. Yeah, that's
1: pretty. Fun. He plays
0: him as he said more like Christopher Walken than like Shonda Burns.
1: <laughs> Danny leaves Cleveland and joins the army. He becomes a very well-known boxer, firearms instructor. Instructor. Uh, he even lives in New York City after he's, after he leaves the army. But he moves back to Cleveland and becomes a longshoreman. He starts working on, on the waterfront, the Lake Erie waterfront, always busy with shipping. Um, and he finds his way to the top of the longshoreman's union. The old union boss is forced out after years of you know, shady dealings. Danny becomes the head of the longshoreman's union in Cleveland and starts doing the exact same thing. It's this role as a union boss that gets him involved in organized crime. It also gets him in a lot of trouble. We'll hear a an interview with him after he was indicted um, on corruption charges, and and he becomes an FBI informant. We ask Rick about his years as a longshoreman to FBI informant to organized crime figure.
0: Danny was really a protégé of Shonda Burns and this is something I'm finding out more in my latest research um, you know he he was not publicity shy which was really the antithesis of the of the mob person it was supposed to be a secret organization but these guys uh, kind of like John Gotti uh, you know they they love publicity you know yeah. would would talk to reporters Shonda Burns would sit down with a newspaper reporter anytime Buy buy him or her a drink. Pick up the pick up the tab if it was dinner maybe. And Danny, you know, took on that same type of personality. Uh, you know, because he was a union leader, he was hanging around where there were other union leaders, and and um, and labor racketeering was also a big component of of. Uh, 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 or one, one of the profitable rackets that the mob was involved in uh, coming out of the 30s, especially going into the 40s and, and 50s. So there were a lot of mobbed up union bosses. So Danny became part of that circle. And I think once he got access to the money that was coming into the, the uh, dock workers union there, the longshoremen, I think that, uh, you know, he just uh, saw the possibilities and, and he was inclined to take control and he started uh, pocketing that money and then eventually was um, eventually would be ousted but but prior to that there was a, um, a very uh, a skilled FBI agent named Marty McCann uh, Irish American and made a good connection with Danny and Danny agreed to work as an FBI informant but it wasn't out of any you know uh, uh patriotism that he did that Uh, you know it said that Danny was more interested in what the FBI could do for him than what he could do for the FBI after nearly four years of devoting all my energies to get the dock workers in Cleveland a fair shake and I found that my only compensation is headlines in a newspaper and bullets through my window before March 1961 I was a longshoreman working in the holds of ships and when I was asked to take over this union and make something of it.
1: Danny's barred from the union. He has to find a new way to make money. He's got a young family living in Collinwood in East Cleveland. He joins with Shonder Burns. and He becomes an enforcer, a collections person, um, you know, a chauffeur for people like Frank Brancato, you know, who, the guy who we talked about being involved in, in our guest's grandfather's death, the man who went to the hospital and had been shot. Danny starts working with people like Frank Brancato of the Cleveland Mafia, Shonda Burns, who runs the Jewish Rackets. Danny and his crew, you know, beatings, killings, explosions, you know, to force people into doing things, and most importantly, to force people to giving them money, whether it's a weekly or monthly basis. Danny becomes an associate of the Cleveland Mafia. We talk about the number of times that he survived assassination attempts, even early on as an associate of the Cleveland mob?
0: Probably a half a dozen, at least, uh, and, and most of it uh, goes back to a conflict that developed between him and Shonda Byrne. See, it was, it was really, Danny was really a mafia associate. It was brought into the the Mafia Circle by Frank Brancato and Seaner Burns. These were aging racketeers that needed um, younger men to 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 start doing taking over the actual uh, nitty gritty yeah. enforcement work, right? The street collections, Were collections, driving, chauffeuring, muscling. Uh, so uh, it's it's really Brancato and, and, and Burns that kind of brought him into brought Danny into that uh, into that circle. And a conflict uh, developed over money it might have been uh, drug money because there was a significant uh, uh, drug dealer involved and in it was a large amount of money like $75,000 and that money was that money was lost and Shonda Burns blamed Danny Green Danny blamed him and uh, and then they started going after each other and you know back then you know bombs uh, were worthy were the, were the uh, weapon of choice you know in the in the film kill the irishman you know it, it kind of makes it look like there's a, there's a major bombing every day it wasn't it quite does. that bad but there were a lot of bombs going off and and there was a bomb put on uh, Danny's, uh, car that he located, uh, that was one of the failed attempts on his life. Uh, he was shot at, uh, by a, by a sniper while he was jogging. And, uh, you know, there was another failed attempt. Um, there was a, a, a sort of a, a little bit of an unrelated, um, Attempt to Shander Burns. It had. It was actually more related to Frank Broncato and the control of uh, the rubbish haulers that he was trying to establish. This yeah, Mike, guild. Mike
1: Fredo, right? Right, Mike Fredo. On the east side of Cleveland, there's a place called the Waterloo Arts District. Now, it used to be a, you know, Euclid Beach, um, but there are a lot of old timey beaches in East Cleveland. I used to go to them when I when I lived there, just to try and find a place to like go read a book or, or just sit in the sun when it finally got warm out. Danny used to jog at a place called White City Beach. Danny was super into exercise, weightlifting, physical fitness. He had become friends with a guy named Mike Fredo. Mike had built a, a small empire in the garbage hauling business, and Danny had been hired by the mob to basically consolidate and take over the garbage hauling business in Northeast Ohio. He was friends with Mike, and he, he basically has to to have Mike pay them Mike to give up his business, and Fredo won't do it. They actually, you know, we talked to to Rick about the Mike Fredo incident at White City Beach in East Cleveland. You know, Fredo's friend drives his car with Fredo in the passenger seat and begins shooting at Danny. It's one of the first and most publicized attempts on his life, covered by the Cleveland media. We talked to Rick about it, about how Danny had a quote-unquote lucky shot.
0: Danny was going after Mike Fredo, had one of his uh, guys put a bomb on Mike Fredo's car. The bomber was actually killed when the the explosive went off prematurely. And then Mike went after uh, Danny while he was jogging, fired at him, missed. And Danny whipped out a little revolver and fired back and and hit Mike and and, and killed Mike Fredo instantly.
1: The subject of the movie Kill the Irishman and Rick's book To Kill the Irishman, Danny Green was a criminal. There's no doubt about it. He had basically been a criminal most of his adult life. When he started in the, you know, the head of the Longshoremen's Union, he had had people killed, possibly killed people himself, beat a number of people up, extorted people all over Northeast Ohio. But he was beloved in the Irish community of Collinwood. We asked Rick to talk about, you know, his reputation in the community. We hear television interviews from neighbors, who discuss Danny Green as a sort of Robin Hood, the Robin Hood of Collinwood.
0: His popularity in the the neighborhood with the with the people, because they they loved him. You know, the Italians hated him. There were a lot of people that that disliked him, but there 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 were a lot of people that loved him too. Either either loved or hated. Yeah, they 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 felt he was a sort of a Robin Hood uh, figure because he you know uh, was was charitable with his uh, with his money.
1: He would treat the people in the neighborhood nice. He really did. The girls, the, the people that were hard up, and every Thanksgiving he bought uh, 50, 20 pound turkeys, gave them away. Every Christmas, 50, 20 pound turkeys gave them away. Call up and say, uh, so I don't want to mention names, but he'd say so-and-so's coming in. Give her what she wants. Danny continues to rise in the world of organized crime in Cleveland. He starts something called the Celtic Club. It's almost kind of like an Irish mob that's now in, in the criminal game. And his relationship with Shander Burns, his partnership, he's a protege of Shander Burns is what Rick calls him. The Jewish racketeer begins to fall apart. In the mid-70s, it's fractured beyond repair. When Danny's loaned $70,000 through Shander. And Shondra had borrowed the money from the Gambino crime family in New York for Danny to start a, basically a nightclub, a place where he could have gambling, a place of his own. But he never receives the money. A courier was sent to get it. It's lost. The man's arrested, found with a bunch of drugs, that he's flushing down a toilet. But Danny never gets the money, and he refuses to pay. And Shondra explains to him that, you know, I borrowed this money. I used, you know, my goodwill. You owe the Gambino crime family, people like Paul Castellano, $70,000, and they want their money. Danny refuses to pay, and his war with Shonda Burns, who's played by you know Christopher Walken like we talked about before, his war with Shonda Burns in the mid-70s is ignited.
0: Well, it's not clear whether that money that, that Danny loaned through Shonda Burns from New York Mobsters was for a nightclub. There may have been drug involvement too, because there was a drug dealer that was uh, supposedly currying the money uh is that is that accurate i'm not absolutely sure but there was a drug dealer involved he was currying the money and the money was lost apparently um uh you know nobody knows exactly what happened to it but it was lost so you know shaundra blamed danny because he felt that he was responsible for maybe managing uh this this courier danny said he never received the money so if he if he never received the money how could he be held responsible for it well, that's what started the big battle between the two of them.
1: But that money is Italian money, correct?
0: Right, right. So now, you know, Chandra's kind of on the hook for that, and that, that creates a problem for him. Uh, and, and that's just, you know, when you're talking about that much money, uh, that's that's not a problem that's going to go away easy within, uh, within the organized crime circles. But, you know, they started going after each other and... and um, and, and and finally, in, in the end, uh, Shandra Burns was getting into his car behind a uh, nightclub at West Twenty Fifth in Detroit, right, right up the street here. Yeah, it is like <laughs> our right, location right down the street, where we yeah. are right now. Yeah, it was called Christie's. It, it, it had recently been renamed. It was it was Jack and Jill West. There was also a Jack and Jill East, but this was Jack and Jill West. And he had a uh, close relationship with the uh, with the um, owner um, uh, Christie and her brother Dell. And, uh, you know, Chandra had been carrying a uh, bodyguard for, for a while. I don't think he had a bodyguard that night. But, you know, someone did walk him to his car. And shortly before he pulled out, a bomb was detonated and boom. And it, and it was it was a, you know, we talk about the bomb on Waterloo not being powerful enough or the second one not going off. This bomb was definitely powerful enough. Too and and powerful, Chandra yeah. was killed instantly, blown out the roof of his uh, Lincoln Continental in two pieces. As far
1: as it, uh, it's a white male, the part that we've got uh, recovered, just the upper
0: torso.
1: are several, several pieces. Uh, yeah, there's pieces all over the place. But Danny's not out of the woods just by killing Chandra Burns on West 25th Street. He's at his house in Collinwood a few months later with his young, very young, too young, illegally young, 17-year-old girlfriend. When his house in Collinwood is targeted for a bombing, the bomb would explode. It would collapse the entire house on itself, Danny and his girlfriend inside. He survives it. There's a second bomb that didn't go off. We ask Rick you know, about this latest attempt on Danny's life that's unsuccessful. We even hear from Danny himself the day after the bombing, talking to a reporter while the rubble of his house sits in the background. Danny says, and I quote, I have no axe to grind. But if these maggots in the so-called mafia want to come after me, I'm over here by the Celtic Club. I'm not hard to find.
0: That that, that was to avenge uh, Shander's murder. And, you know, there were two explosives that were put on his apartment building. It was a small apartment building. He lived on top and had uh, had the business or office space under underneath, right on Waterloo, mm-hmm. off of the uh, shoreway there in Collinwood, like we said, in only one of the bombs went off. You know, the, these guys that fancied themselves experts weren't necessarily experts with with explosives. Um, you know, two of them two of them were killed. Uh, there was a, at least one, I think, maybe two uh, innocent innocent people killed. Uh, you know, you never really know exactly how an explosive is going to act, and the one that went off at Danny's building went off in such a way that. Um, it, 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 it didn't create enough of a blast to seriously injure or kill them inside the building. The building collapsed in such a way that they were just protected. He, uh, Danny and his young girlfriend, they were just protected uh, because of the, 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 the structure and the way uh, you know, where the blast originated from and the, and the power of the blast and the fact that the second bomb did not go off. And it was, he basically what, in walked away. the back of the house? The
1: yes. Bomb. Yeah.
0: The second one was in the back and they, they pretty much walked away with minor injuries. I think Danny broke a, uh, broke a, uh, rib. And he was back the next day or two. And, uh, and again, the, the, you know, Danny was not a publicity shy kind of a guy. He, he was sort of a news uh, uh, publicity hound. He was up there taking pictures next to the, the building um, next door that was, of course, damaged and windows blown out. Yeah, they're animals, you yeah. know, how could they do this? They could have hurt innocent people and they have to be caught and so forth. He was, he was really a good, uh, a good speaker. This is about the fourth time someone's tried to kill you. How do you account for the fact that you uh, survive each time?
1: I'm going to give you that Irish version.
0: What's the Irish version. The guy upstairs pulls the string; you're gone. There's no other way. The carnage that could have been reaped here was unbelievable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, anyone that would be involved in this type of endeavor, uh, this horrible, uh, it's
1: a crime. Uh, should be put in the cage. In 1976, Cleveland becomes known as Bomb City, USA whether it was Danny's war with Shonda Burns. But what really makes the the city explode is the death of John Scalish, the mafia don for 32 years of the Mayfield Road mob. 32 years in Cleveland, he had run. Quietly, really. He had kept peace for the most part, allowing people like Danny and other people on the outside to operate just to keep the peace. But in 1976, 37 bombs blow up in Cuyahoga County. 37. Bombs were, the, were the, the tool of choice by the mafia, and this war, this power vacuum develops following the godfather of Cleveland's death, and Danny's in the center of it. He's the cause of, or target of, a number of these explosions. We ask Rick about the use of bombs, and why Cleveland was Bomb City, USA
0: destructive power that
1: an explosion creates the ability to to shred human
0: flesh to to mangle a car to take down a building i mean it's a it's a terrible uh, a terrible weapon but it, it did become the weapon of choice also in youngstown too the mahoning valley which was a very uh uh an, an area between pittsburgh and cleveland and and that had elements of both organized crime families involved and sometimes in conflict yeah, uh, bombs uh, going back to the uh, 1960s were also uh, commonplace there. In fact, there was a uh, nickname given for a uh, a car bombing because they happened so frequently in the Mahoney Valley. It was called the Youngstown Tune-Up. You know, that, that was a car bombing. Uh, so, you, so you never wanted to get a um, a Youngstown Tune-Up done on your car. <laughs> Uh, like but that. yeah, it was it was really after John Scalish back in Cleveland here in 1976 when he died, and it was that leadership vacuum because he did not name, or it was said that he did not name a definitive successor, a definite successor, so that when he took his last breath, then this guy we knew was, was going to be taking over, and he was firmly in control. There, there was a period of time, you know, maybe maybe a couple weeks or so, a few weeks, where, where it wasn't certain who was going to be in control. Uh, many of the the insiders thought that it would be Angelo Leonardo, big Angelo, Ange, yeah. who was a uh, you know a teenager when he avenged his father's father's uh, murder uh, during Prohibition. But Licavoli, who was also called Jack White, probably better known by some as Jack White, which which was actually a, pl- a play on his very dark complexion. Mm-hmm. Um, he he became the boss, and and that's when. You know, the war between the main faction, you know, uh, in the the Hill, the Hill District, you know, Murray Hill, Mayfield Road, Little Italy, uh, and then John Nardi and Danny Green. That's when things started really picking up.
1: Danny joins forces with an Italian following the death of the godfather John Scalish in in May 1976. He joins John Nardi. Nardi was a high-level mafia associate, um, well-known throughout the state of Ohio. And John sees Danny as his key to taking over power in Cleveland. And John Nardi and Danny Green set up an alliance to try and take down the Cleveland mob. In
0: 1976, when John Scalish died now John Scalish was a longtime boss of the Cleveland mob yeah. uh, after Frank Milano coming out of the uh, 1930s and into the 40s and he was the 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 he was the Godfather a very powerful well-respected figure in in the 1940s 50s 60s and into the 70s until he died in 1976 his death set off a, a power uh, leadership vacuum. And in, um, in, in short, Danny Green and another mafia associate named John Nardi, who was a, uh, a, a pretty well-known uh, union figure, they, they basically teamed up to take control of things. And one of their first targets was Leo Moseri. Uh, Leo Lips, yep, Moseri, who was the cousin of the successor to John Scalish, and that was Jack White or James Licavoli. Uh, and 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 when Licavoli took over, he appointed Moseri, his cousin, as the underboss or or second in command. Yeah. Well, that uh, Moseri was the one of the first targets of of uh, Danny Green and John Nardi. And when he was killed, that was really um, that just didn't happen. You didn't kill an underboss. Uh, that's something that would have to, you know, you'd have to have a sit down with the boss, or maybe even the New York bosses, to do something like that. You didn't have outsiders come into the organization and and, and whack someone out. So that was a, that was when um, uh, Licavoli sort of pulled out all the stops, and there were more and more attempts, more and more people uh, that were loyal to him, or or wanted to position themselves well in the organization. Who then started going after Danny Green and John Nardi?
1: And it's during this nineteen seventy six, you know, Cleveland mob war that Nardi and, and and Danny take a trip to New York City. The Mayfield Road Mob, the Little Italy Mafia, has a plan to kill both of them. You know, as the the war would be over for who runs the streets of Cleveland if you take out John Nardi and Danny Green. They park in long term parking at Cleveland Hopkins Airport and fly to New York. The Mafia moves in, they plant a bomb on the car, they take out a hotel room with with a view of the parking lot, and they wait for them to return. I love this story. We asked Rick about why didn't it work?
0: This was when they were, you know, they had remote control bombs, like right. wireless remote control bombs. You push a push a button from, you know, 150 yards away and the bomb goes off and uh, and that's what they did when, when uh, Green and Nardi returned from New York City On business, and they got in their car. The bomb was on the car, and they started exiting the uh, the airport parking lot. These
1: guys, they basically put a bomb on while they're like in long term parking, right? Yeah, right, right. Set it
0: on the car, and then they watched from a hotel room that overlooked the airport. And when Green and Nadia and already got in the car, they hit that button, but the bomb didn't go off. And uh, they probably were not close enough because they were seen running through the lobby. (laughs) <laughs> um, by by witnesses who said they had something in their hand, and they were pressing the button, maybe trying to get close, close enough. They yeah, they're have, out of range. Or may something. have misjudged the range, or there may have been some some other uh, technical glitch or something. Uh, so yet yet another failed attempt on on uh, Danny Green and and John Nardi, and and with each of these failed attempts, Danny Green's uh, you know reputation for being indestructible sort of sort of grew.
1: There's open warfare on the streets of Cleveland in, the, in 1976, 1977. John Nardi, Danny Green versus the Cleveland Mafia. There's fighting in Youngstown we talk about. There's 37 bombings. The ATF triples their forces here in Cleveland. Even at, for a time, move their office from Cincinnati, their regional office from Cincinnati to Cleveland to try and address this issue. But Danny and John go to war. We talk about about that alliance and why they just could not kill Danny Green.
0: Well, I think there was a a fear of getting too close. And, 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 you know, they did not have um, enforcers and, and, and soldiers that had a lot of experience because John Scalish kept things quiet. They didn't need... A whole lot of enforcing done you know going back in the 50s and 60s and the in the in the early That's a good 70s point. john scalish kept things very quiet he liked it being quiet he didn't bring in a lot of new members so there wasn't there wasn't much experience when it came to enforcers now there was one guy by the name of eugene Ciasulo, who uh was nicknamed the animal if that tells you anything it, yeah. about his capabilities as an enforcer he was loyal to scalish and to licavoli Uh, but, but John Nardi and Danny Green, uh, they, they were, they were smart when they went on the offensive because they went after Eugene Ciasullo first. They put a bomb on his front porch. Eugene was almost killed and he was taken out of, the, uh, out of the fight. Had he not been, and had they not also gone after, um, just prior to that gone after uh, Leo Moseri, who even though he was uh, 69, 70 years old, also very feared figure, very capable figure. Had they not taken out those two main enforcers first, things may have gone differently for, for Green and Nardi.
1: Cleveland Mafia is embarrassed nationally. Their inability to kill this one Irishman, Jack Licavoli, or Jack White, the new boss of of Cleveland, sends out the order to kill the Irishman. They killed a number of his associates, his cousin, but they can't seem to get to him. And when they do, they fail. People like in the New York Mafia are, are just outraged, and they try and pitch in to help to kill the Irishman. So they go out of town, and they bring in a pro, an out-of-town assassin, Ray Ferrito. And Ray Ferrito's job is to finally kill Danny Green.
0: Ferrito was was just a, a part of the circle with with Ronnie Carabia and 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 Butchie sister. know, there was a circle, but but one of the the differences that that he was known to have killed a guy. Uh, he was a former burglar from Cleveland by the name of Julius Petro out in Los Angeles. So he had he had sort of you might say uh, proven himself fairly. Uh, you know, in the past, uh, I don't know five or yeah, it wasn't six, that long years. before yeah. And, and so they brought Ray Ferrito in, and they, you know, uh, his, his compensation was going to be that, the, that he was going to become made and, uh, you know, or inducted into the organization. The organization had, the mafia had made members or officially inducted members where they go through a blood oath and swear allegiance to the organization. And then they had, they, the, the, the other members were associate members. And, and uh, um, Ray Ferrito really wanted to be a made member. And, and, and share in the profits and share in the, in the, uh, the uh, power and be sort of a, a member of the inner circle. So they promised him that. And he came in and really started uh, with some of the other soldiers like uh, uh, Ali Calabrese, um, and, there, and there, there were a few others, started stalking Danny Green, started getting intelligence on him. Um, one of the things I think that's really interesting uh, was that they, they followed... What the FBI had been doing with wiretapping, you know, with the wiretapping laws coming out of the the, the '60s, I think, uh, uh, or '70s, that they, they decided they're going to put a, a tap on Danny Green's girlfriend's phone, and they started recording because Danny Green knew that they were after after him, and he was smart. He 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 um, didn't keep a schedule, you know. He would switch cars with. Um, uh, members of his organization, like Keith Ritson, yeah, Keith. Uh, Sorry, yeah. they they would switch cars. Uh, in fact, there was a, a on one of the FBI wiretaps, one of the uh, mob bosses is heard complaining about uh, trying to get a um, a a line on Danny as far as his schedule, and they say the guy don't keep no time. You can't get him if he if he says he's going to be there at three o'clock. The hell with it. He shows up at three thirty. You know, so so Danny Green knew that that um, he was a target. So that made it a little bit more difficult too. And in Collinwood, he also had neighbors and friends who were um, loyal to him. So if there was a strange car that came through the neighborhood, they might get on the phone, give him a call. Um, so that 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 made it difficult. For him yeah, as a it's, target it's, of the mafia, that's how he
1: lives for you know a couple of years there. But they do kind of pin him down. Uh, actually, in your your own town of uh, Lindhurst,
0: I'm interestingly, of know. all the municipalities the way Cuyahoga right? County is, is cut up into so, so many small municipalities. It winds up being uh, Lindhurst. Yeah, they tapped his um, uh, his girlfriend's phone, and then they would go get the recording, um, and they would listen to it and try and get uh, get his schedule. And they found out that he was going to be. Going to a dentist, another irony of this whole thing is it actually my dentist at Brainerd Place. At-
1: for years, Danny had evaded the mob. Their hitmen, a sniper attack, a, you know, he was stabbed, uh, bombs by his house, and all these different things, but Danny had survived it for years. But once they bring in Ray Ferrito, his days are numbered. Ferrito begins stalking him for what appears to be a number of weeks or months he puts a bug on his girlfriend's phone to try and find his whereabouts. And on October 6, 1977, Ray Ferrito and the Cleveland Mafia finally caught up to Danny Green.
0: And, uh, so they thought, all right, well, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to kill him there when he goes to the dentist appointment because we we know he's going to show up. So what they did is they're still using bombs, but this time now, and, and was the case with John Nardi, too, who they had finally got a few months before that, uh, they were putting the bomb on the targets. Uh, I'm sorry, on a bomb car or a throwaway car. They called it a Joe Blow car, and a Joe Blow car was just a vehicle that was registered to a fictitious name, and that theoretically could not be could not be traced. So now they didn't have to get close to the victim's car. They would they would plant the bomb on the Joe Blow car, and then they just needed to park. The the Joe Blow slash bomb car next to the victim's car, and that's what they did at Brainer Place in in October of 1977. And uh, when Danny was coming out of that dentist appointment, it uh, uh, was uh, Ray Ferrito and Ronnie Carabia. They uh, you know pushed that button, detonated that bomb. Danny Green was killed instantly. <laughs>
1: Following Danny's death in suburban Lynnhurst, which is, like I said, just east of downtown, it's the, the home of our guest today, Rick Perello, His murder in Lynnhurst draws every law enforcement agency in Northeast Ohio. The feds, the ATF, Cleveland police, Lynnhurst police, prosecutors. Everyone wants to solve this and clean this up. The, the violence is spread to the suburbs. An alert witness at Danny's bombing plays a huge role in solving Danny's murder. And Danny's murder would ultimately lead to the bringing down the Cleveland Mafia and significantly weakening the role of Italian organized crime throughout the United States. Danny's able to do in death what he was not able to do in life, bring down the Cleveland mob. It's, it's
0: very difficult when you're committing a crime not to make a mistake. There's things that you don't even think about. You don't even think about that you're going to make a mistake on. And I highly doubt that Ray Frito and Ronnie Karabia thought that um, the fact that there were two of them in the car, one was in the front seat driving and one was in the back seat, and then there's this big explosion, and they're looking back probably with some degree of... Um, Pleasure, or excitement, not or accomplishment. Shocked, yeah. yeah, right. Not shock. They probably had no idea that there might be a a, a witness in a car very close to them, whose attention uh, they they would uh, would catch. Um, um, you know, the witness would would get the attention of um, Carabia and and Farido in this car. And not only did they get their attention of this young couple's. Uh, a mm-hmm. uh, girl and a, a young woman and her fiance, but the woman was smart enough to have her boyfriend. The woman's father was a policeman.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: she was pretty slick, and 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 she had her boyfriend write down the license plate number.
1: They they kept driving with the car, I think, for a little. Right, bit, yeah. I think they
0: got on the uh, freeway going northbound uh, on two seventy one there, and then the girl locked eyes with the driver. That was Ray Ferito. And she went home, and she knew that there, there was probably some connection. She just uh, felt it. that was suspicious to this explosion that just occurred at this uh, building uh, a few hundred yards away. So she went home, and she drew a sketch. She happened to be an artist. She's an artist and the
1: daughter of a police officer. Right,
0: right. So she drew a sketch of the driver, and she turned a sketch over to her father, told her father what had happened, what they saw. The father turns the sketch over to Cleveland Police Intelligence. Cleveland Police Intelligence uh, uh, officers, including um, Ed Kovacic, who later became the police chief, look at this photo and say, this guy looks familiar. They started looking through mugshots. It's Ray Ferrito from Erie, Pennsylvania. And then... As they say, the the dominoes started well, yeah, started man. toppling. Eventually, they they um, executed a search warrant at Ray Ferrito's house in Erie, and while they were there, they found the registration papers to the um, either the getaway car or the bomb car. I'm not sure. I think both. And and they had um, a a magazine, a Cleveland Magazine, that was open to an article about these about about Danny Green, and uh, pretty soon they they had they had uh, Ray Ferrito.
1: Ferrito and his Cleveland Mafia associates make a mistake in the killing of Danny Green. They bought two cars, the getaway car and the bomb car, like we talked about. But the registration of the getaway car and the bomb car were only one number apart. They were obtained at the same time. The numbers are sequential. Ferrito's done, and he knows it. He's busted the killer of Danny Green. And ultimately, he flips, and his flipping to becoming a state's witness starts a chain reaction. And like we said, it was the death of Danny Green that helps to bring down the mafia La Cosa Nostra here in Northeast Ohio and across the country. We'll play we we'll listen to Rick and we'll play you a clip as multiple mafia members are arrested for the murder of Danny Green.
0: Um so what do you do with one guy that could take down the organization? Who's got the information, the inside information? What do you do with them? You got to whack them. You got to you got to whack them. So they put a contract out on Ray Frito. When he finds that out, he decides to make a deal with the Feds, and and um
1: and really opens the floodgates.
0: And and, and, it, and it and it does. It's one of the one of the first ones. Uh, and and he's protected, you know. I think he pleads out on the murder out in L.A. and maybe does some time, but he's able to now start, as you say, the the floodgates open to others who will cooperate, and and pretty soon, just the whole organization started going down. Now with the state case, the the uh, aggravated arson and aggravated murder at at um, at Brainerd Place, there was only a few convictions but then the the feds were ready with federal racketeering indictments and that that took another group and sent them sent them to prison a massive fbi crackdown has put a crimp in the style of
1: cleveland area mobsters eight of them have been nabbed in connection with recent gangland killings and our tappy phillips has details she's live now with our action cam at the new federal
0: building tappy well, Jenny, we were just upstairs at the FBI office where they told us they believe they have wiped out what they call a Cosa Nostra in Cleveland, and this all started this morning with the arrest of a James uh, James Licavoli, and uh, you see him now going into the federal building.
1: The head of the Cleveland mob, Jack Licavoli, is indicted. Dozens of other Cleveland and Youngstown mafiosos are convicted as they begin to be in Los Angeles, in Kansas City, in Milwaukee, in New York. These mobsters are, you know, a part of these ever-growing operations, these police operations, all stemming from the Danny Green murder. Licavoli's finally put away on a RICO charge. He'd die in prison. You know, they tapped his phone. They could hear him talking about Danny Green's killing and the planning for it. A guy named Big Ange Leonardo, who he mentioned, takes over. Big Ange was was maybe the most mafia guy in Cleveland of the Cleveland mafia guys. He's the most old school. Big Ange had been in the game since Prohibition. He was old school, but even he gets arrested as the acting boss of La Cosa Nostra in in Cleveland. We ask our guest, Rick Perello, why do these guys start talking? People like Big Ange Leonardo becomes one of the biggest witnesses to help bring down the mafia. He's the Cleveland boss, and he goes state's witness.
0: And then Angelo Leonardo and his guys around him went went down, and he was sentenced to life in prison, and uh, this was a time when FBI agents were trying and in, in talking to these guys, getting them to flip, as they, as they say, go to work for the government, and, uh, you know... Angelo Leonardo just wasn't a, a Jack Licavoli. Jack Licavoli, what, what he told his attorney, you know, if I'm going down, I'm going down with the ship. I'm not making any deals. He even told his attorney, Jim Willis, he said, Jim, if you want us to remain friends, don't bring me any more deals Offers. from the government. He said, if I'm going down, I'm going down with the ship. Angelo Leonardo went to prison for a couple of years. I think he missed uh, life out on the streets, missed his wife, missed his uh, family. Uh, um and I
1: think you mentioned Cadillac. He he missed his, his Cadillac. His Cadillac, sure.
0: You know his his way of life, and and um, he it was a it was a shock. I think um, within federal law, really law enforcement in general, uh, especially in Northeast Ohio, but uh, also nationally with organized crime, when he flipped because he was a he was the acting boss when Licavoli went to prison. Um, Leonardo for for a short period of time was the acting boss. So this was the first time. You had the boss, of of, a a mafia boss, going to work for the government, and he's going to be a cooperating witness, and he's going to tell all, and he was used in some significant major mob trials. He testified uh, before the U.S. Senate, laid out the whole history of the mafia, Uh, a very, very important figure.
1: James Licavoli and John Calandra left the federal courthouse an hour after they were convicted on racketeering charges. Judge William Thomas allowed the two reputed mafia leaders to continue the bond set for them at the beginning of their trial. The other four men convicted today, including reputed mobster Anthony Libator, are already serving prison terms. The Justice Department based its case on the testimony of several convicted felons who plea bargained in exchange for inside information on the Cleveland Rackets operation. We're very happy. It was a long trial. Uh, The green matter is finally they closed. Danny Green brought down the mafia all over the United States. You know, we talk about Ohio versus the world, and sometimes the world wins, and sometimes you know the subject matter, sometimes Ohio wins. But in Ohio versus the mafia, I think it's fair to say that Ohio does win. Danny Green wins. Men like Sammy the Bull Gravano, a high-end uh, mafioso in the Gambino crime family, flips. The New York families start to go down. Danny represented his death represented a sea change for organized crime in this country. You know, they'd never been able to operate nationally or with the kind of impunity that they enjoyed from the 1920s to the 1980s following his death. Danny Green's death played a huge role in a world that we see now as less connected but to the mafia. We close today by by talking to Rick. Why do people, the American public, they love this mafioso stuff, pop culture—they love mob movies, you know. And Rick calls them the new westerns.
0: Yeah, Alex, I can't take credit for that. I'm not sure where I heard that, but it makes sense that, yeah, that mob movies are, are the new western. It's a, it's a uh, a unique genre. It's a subgenre of true crime, and of course, true crime is is very popular. I mean, all you need to do is look at. Look at the listings on television or, or cable. You know, there's police series, law enforcement, CSI, movies, uh, all over the place. And there there have been going back. I think to, you know, even the sixties and seventies. I remember some of these shows that I was interested in because I would had, was interested in police work from when I was a kid. But they are um, uh, they are uh, you know just a fascinating part of American. Culture, uh, and, and we're talking about uh, mob movies. The whole idea of a secret organization that um, runs counter to the laws. They're, they have a secret, uh, a, a rule of secrecy punishable by death. Omerta, uh, right? Omerta, right, right. The Sicilian Code of Silence was, which was probably the, I would say, the main tenet of of um, membership in that organization. You know, you don't talk. Everything's uh, everything's quiet within the membership. But and it's and it's also a um, an organization that rules by intimidation, you know, threats, violence, um, infiltration of legitimate uh, businesses, corruption of, uh, of uh, government officials, politicians. So there's that whole side of it. And then when you're talking about the Italian organized crime, you know, the, the mafia is just part of organized crime. Um, you know, there's other ethnicities that are involved in organized crime, but, but the Italian mob, I think the the um, I think it was, was it was a combination of the beautiful Italian culture, you know, opera, the Roman Catholic religion, the the food, of course, the food, the emphasis on on family, all those beautiful elements of Italian culture, and then that was married with the violence. On the other side, and it, and it just worked, uh, especially in the you know the great the the, the great movie, the, the, the Godfather. It just worked, and in other films too, uh, Goodfellas. It, it just worked to create a um, a, a really irresistible combination of, of um, elements to produce a, a great piece of of, of entertainment, and, you, uh... and, and and history too.
1: from garfield's tomb to the serpent Mound, from the big cities to the river towns first in flight making history there's so many books you need to see i like reading and i like reading tipper canoe and tyler too. from the queen city to Lake Erie, blue edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Guys, our book recommendation today, I'm sure you can guess, is To Kill the Irishman by Rick Perello, written in 1998. It's turned into a feature film, like we said, called Kill the Irishman starring Christopher Walken, Val Kilmer, Paul Servino, Vincent D'Onofrio, many other people you'll recognize, actors. It's a somewhat accurate portrayal of those years in Cleveland, those Bomb City, USA, Danny Green years. Um, I think Rick said in an interview I heard maybe about 40% accurate. It is a Hollywood movie. But we talked to Rick about that process of getting his book made into a movie. We'll put it in the description, Amazon link for you to buy To Kill the Irishman. If you're into this story or into the mafia or into Ohio and true crime, it's a a really fun read. But we talked to him, how does this book he wrote get made into a feature film?
0: executive producer It's a, yes, a credit yes, yeah yeah. I um, the book wasn't even on the shelf yet but there was a newspaper article it was the, the uh, News Herald Lake County uh, about this police I think it might have been it uh, might have been a sergeant at the time and it says you know police sergeant or police officer whatever it was writing book about Danny Green so that article went out and there was a young man who was a, a graduate of the New York Film Academy and he was at o- Ohio State University had friends in Cleveland and his name was Tommy Reed, and he was of Italian and Irish heritage. He wanted to make movies. He wanted his first movie to have something to do with Italian and Irish. Yeah. The Danny Green story, perfect. He sees that newspaper article. One of his friends passes along. He contacts me. At the same time, there is a businessman from originally from Collinwood who moved out to L.A. Uh, he's in the real estate business. He wants to make a movie based on my book. Within a two- or four-week period of time, I get two offers to purchase the rights to to kill the Irishman. I'm falling off my
1: my seat. It's more than a 10-year process. Like we said, the book is written in 98. The movie doesn't come out until 2011. It took 13 years to get this movie made. You know, it's the story of Danny Green made its way around Hollywood. We ask Rick about, you know, that process. Of going from from having a, a screenwriting deal in place to actually getting the movie made,
0: it, it, it took a long time. Yeah, it took a long time, and I waited. And, and you know, occasionally I'd hear that the, the you know the the story was being pitched to a a well known well known actor. And then I you know wait, and another month or two would go by, and all right, he passed on it. You know, and then a month would go by. Now they're presenting it to this guy. Well, eventually there were other uh, partners brought in, brought on board, and in 2009, um, Peter Miller, um, my agent, contacted me. and Said they're they're making your film, and at the time I didn't know if it was going to be a made for television film, made for cable, or what. But Tommy Reed, to his credit, from the beginning, said he wanted to make a big screen film that came out in the in the you know in the movie theaters, and um, and he got it
1: done. We got to give a special thanks to our guest Rick Perrello. Uh It's pretty sweet to have your research turned into a big Hollywood movie like Kill the Irishman, um, and I can see why he's got a real passion for it. And we're going to have to have him on again. He's working on a book about Chandra Burns, um, and he has already written The Rise and Fall of the Cleveland Mafia, which you can find on Audible. Um, he's also able to order that uh, through Amazon as well. So click the link in the description if you want to buy. Uh, to kill the Irishman by Rick Parello. Um, thanks again to Brian Tobman of Tobman Law uh, for letting us use his space in Ohio City uh, on this Saturday morning here in Cleveland. Um, thank you so much to Rick again. Excited to read his new book about Shonder Burns. You know the guy who Christopher Walken plays in the movie, uh, Cleveland's most famous Jewish racketeer. Also, guys, don't forget vote for us as best podcast in Columbus. Like I said, we're one of the Eight or nine nominees by the Columbus Alive for their Best of Columbus 2018 Reader's Poll. Uh, Again, go to our Facebook page. We'll have a link right there. It's on the second page under Entertainment. It's uh, Category 65 Best Podcast. Vote for Ohio v. The World. Uh, We'll put a a voting uh, link up on our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. And it's also, if you scroll down, you can click on it right now on the descriptions. In, in iTunes on, on podcast and vote right there on your phone. Nothing's going to help us get more fans, so it takes you know one minute. I'm asking you to not be lazy and give us that vote. Ohio v. The World has the best podcast in Columbus for 2018. Be a huge help. That'll do it for today's episode, Ohio vs. the Mafia. Next week, we are back for episode 10. We'll be two-thirds of the way through the season. We're talking about Ohio versus Slavery. We're going to look at the Underground Railroad and the prominent role Ohio played in the history of the Underground Railroad. We have two different guests that we'll be interviewing. Um, really looking forward to that really cool episode. I learned so much doing the research for that, um, and I can't wait to bring that story to you and some of those fascinating stories about the horrors of slavery, the fugitive slave law, and runaway slaves here in Ohio trying to escape north, even into Canada for freedom. Thanks, guys, again so much. Uh, we will see you next time for episode 10, Ohio versus Slavery. This has been Ohio V. The World. Take it easy.